Good morning again, and it is a beautiful morning. I'll uh, give a commercial and then we'll get started. We are going through, uh, in the nine o'clock hour in our Bible study time, I still like to call it Sunday school. Somebody told me that calling it Sunday school in a group such as we have here uh, is... uh, not a good thing to do because you think of Sunday school as something for children. And definitely, I don't think any of us really, we might be children at heart, but we just aren't. Uh, so I, every time that I think about the nine o'clock hour, my brain says Sunday school and I try to translate that by tongue to say Bible study. So it comes out, flows out. So if you ever, hear that hesitation is because the translation is taking its time to get from one place to the other. But anyway, Bible study right now is church history. And today in Bible study, uh, we establish the Catholic Church. I know how exciting that is for all of us Baptists that are here. But uh, the foundations of the church have been laid, uh, physically speaking, not spiritually speaking, uh, and it's an exciting time. We had a really uh, beautiful study today, and uh, each of the studies uh, are basically independent. So because you weren't here today doesn't mean that you can't come next week and be all worried about catching up because it works out a little differently than that. You're certainly welcome to come. Uh, and it's an exciting study, and I think a study that all of us uh, could benefit from, most especially as we... Uh, move closer to what's known as uh, Protestantism or the Reformation uh, because that's where we are uh, in our situation right now. Martin Luther and other people like him at that time, 15th century, 14th century. <clears throat> and uh, so anyway, you're, you're invited to come. This morning, we're going to be continuing through a situation that I've been preaching through, uh, calling, uh, experiencing God. We want to experience God in a more real and personal and closer way. And that's what we've been talking about. And so that's the message today uh, as we uh, get started. So let's pray for the message. Pray that God will speak to us uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, teach us what we would have to be taught today. Let's pray. Gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you this beautiful day, a day in which we come to freely worship you. We ask now that you use that Holy Spirit over time in our hearts and our minds, setting aside the cares of the world, uh, that we might look specifically uh, at you and what you would have uh, for us. And we thank you now and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about the seven realities of experiencing God. There are certain things that we need to do in order to truly experience God. And I'll have to admit uh, that the Bible study this morning uh, in the establishment of the Christian faith in Rome, which we all kind of realize that's kind of where the physical church became legalized for the first time, uh, was in Rome in the in the uh, fourth century. 
in the 300s. So, uh, <clears throat> but people were coming to the church just because it was illegal, because people were coming to church. They had no idea about their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. They just, they just came because the crowds come. And unfortunately, we have that today. Uh, nothing's changed. <laughs> Everything has changed. The, the fashions have changed. The cars are different, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The, yeah, certainly there have been some changes since, since, you know, 325 uh, AD, but people haven't really changed. We have people by the scores, uh, by the, uh, be careful how I say this, the football stadium filled, uh, that come just to come. Well, that's what we do. We do it for business reasons. People think that I'm a real special person because, because I attend, uh, this place or that place on Sunday morning, uh, and they'll think highly of me and then frequent my business. And, and we know that that happens. And it happens a lot. So when we go by and we see a full parking lot at a church, that doesn't mean that we've got a hundred or two hundred or three hundred or, or whatever, you know, pick the number, ten thousand people committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and are truly experiencing God as He would like us to experience Him. So we're going to look at those realities. We've been talking about several of them. We're going to focus in on one of them uh, today, uh, and we'll get to that in a moment. But let's do a little, just a little bit of review uh, because we want to make sure we have that foundation down. God is always at work around you. That's the first reality. Some of the, something that we really have to have a handle on, that God is always at work around you. Now, what does that mean? And that means he's here right now. He's here with you right now. All you can talk to him right now. As I am speaking to you, he can speak to you. He can whisper in your ear. You can actually talk to him in thought process because he knows your mind. You don't have to say the words. You don't have to make the tongue work. You can talk to him as you tune in to him mentally. God is always at work around you. And the second thing, the second reality, and each of them seem to kind of build on one another. The second reality goes this way. God pursues a continuing love relationship uh, <coughs> with you that is real and personal. A continuing love relationship that is real and personal. And what does that look like? Well, we can even, we just go back to the salvation message. Wherever you were, whatever you were doing, when you finally decided that you needed the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, guess who was there? So that gets us back to reality number one. He's at work around you, isn't he? And the second thing is he is there in his love. He's ready to do what? He's ready to give you the zenith of love in that he's going to forgive you your sins. He's going to invite you to actually move in with him forever. I don't have a relative that I want to move in with me forever. Well, there is one. Uh, but you got the idea. You know what I'm talking about. After a little while, 
hey, isn't it time for you to go home, you know, back to wherever, back to Minnesota, back to, and I'll pick on the ladies from Canada today, uh, back to Canada. You know, you're welcome now, but five days from now, I think I heard it in, my con- in our conversation, it's been great having you. We'll see you again someday. Maybe when I come up to Canada, we'll see you then. But God is there all the time, and he loves you so much that he's done what? He's delivered to you those very things that we've talked about, the forgiveness of sins, and you've been invited to live with him forever, forever. And that's a very, very long time. That's the second reality, which leads to the third reality, that God speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in several ways. He might work through the Bible. He works through prayer, through circumstance, through the church. And I guess at this point, we'll say, therefore, through me, as as I am basically the spokesperson uh, for this congregation, for this church. Uh, he reveals himself to do what? Not only to draw you closer to him, but to his purposes and his ways in order that you might live that Christian upright life that we kind of threw rocks at people for, for just showing up for church because it's the thing to do. Nothing else to do on Sunday morning. Why shouldn't I? Uh, God speaks to us by the Holy Spirit. So when you're reading your Bible, and we'll talk more about that as we go along, as you're reading your Bible, you're going to find that as you call upon the Holy Spirit to speak to you as you read the physical words that are on the printed page or on that device that the battery's running down, all of those, whatever it is, God is speaking to you as if he's sitting in the chair next to you, having conversation with you, sharing with you his love for you. And that leads us to God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief. A crisis of belief. And we used, and, and I'll just pick on Mary because we all, uh, we all know the story of Mary. And so I can refer to her and everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. Think about it. When God actually involved Mary in his work, he sent an angel to Mary and said, guess what I want you to do? And you know what that is. You know, is that not a crisis of belief? I mean, she asked the question, how is that possible? That can't be possible. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist, but I've taken enough biology. I have sat down in that private room with mom and she's explained to me about this and that and the other thing. And something's wrong here. Crisis of belief. And every single one of us comes to those things as we consider what God would have us to do. And you must make major uh, changes in your life to join in what he's doing. You must make major changes in your life to join him in what you're doing. And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to look at what those changes look like and why they're necessary. And it's nothing new. It's absolutely nothing new. And when we look at our, quote, our heroes of the Bible, we're going to see changes in every single one without exception. Without exception, there's changes, that radical changes, big changes that happen in the life of all of our heroes, all of the people, and I'm going to mention a few and, and we'll be reminded of the changes that they had to make. Uh, Mary's already been mentioned and she's New Testament. We're going to do some Old Testament. Hey, remember this. 
But the absolute necessity of adjustment or changes are there. Have to be. Look at Noah. Noah was doing fine. He had sons. He had daughters-in-law. Every life was good. And then God came along and said, build a boat. It's going to rain, and uh, et cetera. You know the story. And so for over 100 years, uh, Noah's building this boat. We'll call it the ark. Uh, And then he's going to gather animals. And all of that time, his neighbors are, you know, just having a great time uh, doing whatever it is the neighbors are doing, uh, be it, you know, sinful or not. uh, And asking Noah, we don't have that written down in Scripture, but people got to wonder, whatever is he doing out there? This guy, he's off his rocker. Maybe we should put him in a mental institution. Canyon Springs has got a bed open and we can put him in. How about Abraham? Abraham doing really well, really well in the Babylonian area. And God said, I want you to take your family and I want you to leave town. And that's all scripture tells us. He doesn't tell Abraham where to go. He just tells him, I want you to go. And so off he goes. Crisis. This is part of what I have for you. And there's a crisis of change. There's a necessity of a judgment in the life of Abraham. Moses. The Moses. The great Moses. The Old Testament Jesus. Very nearly in the minds of some people. Moses is a shepherd. He's got a wife and a kid. And he's doing great. If you want to be a shepherd all your life. uh, I'm not going to argue with that. And then he finds the burning bush. And what happens at the burning bush? God says, I want you to go back to Egypt. Whoa, wait a minute. There's a death warrant waiting for me if I go back to Egypt. Pharaoh's going to arrest me the minute he sees me, etc., etc. Hey, I can't speak to Pharaoh. I'm not a speaker. I don't know. You know, I can't put two words together. All crisis, change. You're going to do what I ask you to do. It's going to cause a crisis of belief and it's, cause, it's going to cause a necessity for a judgment of your, uh, assessment of change. I'm, skip, I'm fumbling. Stop it. It requires that necessity of adjustment. He's going to set aside his sheep. He's going to set aside for a time his wife and his son, his son and he's going to go do what? He's going to go back to Egypt. Back to Egypt he goes. That's Moses. I love Jonah. Jonah does not want to do what Jonah has been asked to do. Flat out, God said, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach. I hate Ninevans so bad. There's absolutely no way under your God's green earth that I'm going to go to Nineveh. Because, listen to this. Because I know, Noah says, I know that if I go, you'll forgive them. And guess what I want? I don't want you to forgive them. I want you to do what? Send them to, you know, that place. Not to live with you forever, but go to that place. That's where you should be. That's where I want them to go. I hate them that much. I'm not going. And he runs away. Well, you know the story. And he finally turns around. And he knows exactly who God is. Because he turns around. He goes to Nineveh. And if you listen carefully to what he says to the Ninevites, 
uh, he's not an eloquent God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't give him the four spiritual laws. He basically just comes in, hey, guess what? I've got a death sentence for you. 40 days and you're out of it. You're done. You're toast. That was his message. Talk about a hellfire and brimstone uh, message. There was that message. That's Noah. Uh, pardon me. Is that where I am? Jonah. Jonah. Uh, we finished Noah. That's Jonah. Necessity of adjustment in his life. Necessity of adjustment in his life. He had to turn around and go. He had to do. He had to do what God would have him to do. And it required, it required that change. Even Jesus. Even Jesus makes the change. Jesus, the Son of God, who pre-exists, He and God have been together for all of eternity, from all of eternity past. There's never been a time, watch the word time there, but there's never been a time when God and Jesus didn't exist. One day they got around to creating the heavens and the earth. And I'm not making light of it, but there it is. So there is a point in time when God said, let there be. And when Jesus said, let there be, I agree with God. And then God, they set up this plan of salvation and Jesus is going to lay down all of his godly prerogatives and Jesus is going to become a physical man. Which means he's going to bleed. He's going to fall down and scrape his knee and it's going to hurt. He's going to get hungry. All of that business, all of the things that happen uh, to human beings, to men, uh, are going to happen to Jesus, uh, except he's not going to sin. Why is he not going to sin? Because he already understands all of the realities. But he's re-understanding and he's living in those realities as a man. He set aside all of his godly prerogatives. He'll tell you, he tells you very clearly in the Gospels that he doesn't do any of the super miracle things. He doesn't pick up a magic wand like Moses tried to do when he struck the rock. He doesn't do any of those things. It's all the power of the Father that accomplishes what's going to be accomplished. And that includes raising Lazarus from the dead. All of the miracles are from the power of God. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God raised him from the dead. God brought him out of the tomb. God reconciled Jesus unto himself, physically, spiritually, and we'll talk about how that works another day. But those are those adjustments that had to be made. We don't think about the adjustments that Jesus made, even to the point, of course, as we come up to uh, Easter time, we're going to be looking carefully at the zenith of those adjustments, aren't we? Uh, as we talk about Passion Week, as we talk about crucifixion and, and so on. Absolute necessity of adjustment. Second Corinthians says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's empirical knowledge, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you may... Uh, that you may through his poverty might become rich. You know, I saw a license plate thing oh, several years ago now, and it said this. It said, if you are far away from God, guess who moved? 
if you are far away from God, if you feel far away from God, guess who moved? Well, if we go back to reality number one, we get a clue. God is at work around you all the time. God is always at work around you. Two pages. Second, the difference-making power of adjustments. We have to understand the difference, uh, the difference-making power of adjustments. And we see that in the Christmas message. And we're going to look at the Christmas message now uh, in a different way. So turn to Philippians with me. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read just a few verses. And I want you to see this power uh, that I'm talking about. Chapter 2, uh, verses 5 to 11. Uh, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. I'm reading King James, so you got to translate some of the words so you really understand the import here. And took upon himself the form of a servant. The form of a servant. And that's what we are. We are servants of God, aren't we? And Jesus took upon himself that very form. Form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The scripture goes on to say, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, if we go to the Garden of Gethsemane and we look at that prayer uh, that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the humanness side of him where he says, I just as soon not do this, but not my will but thine be done. And really, when you look at all of the, the heroes, so to speak, that I've mentioned, they came to exactly that same point. They bounced up against it, and then they came to a, a, a point that they had to say, not my will, but thine be done. Just think of Mary. Think of Moses. Think of <laughs> Jonah. <laughs> He really had to be shown away, didn't he? Uh, But going on. Okay, being found in fashion as a man, even death on the cross, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things of earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's why Jesus came. What's the purpose of Christmas? The purpose of Christmas is Easter. The purpose of Easter is what? Is your reconciliation to God. You want to, you want to talk about how much God loves you? He sent Jesus to go through all of that junk from Christmas Day, whatever date in the calendar that is, and we'll do that another day, uh, all the way up through... Uh, that time at Calvary where he hung on the cross like a common criminal and died, physically died, to be raised again. For who? For you. For me. That's the power of making those adjustments. 
the power of making those adjustments. Henry Blackaby says this, no one can sum up all God is able to accomplish through one solitary life. Holy yield, adjusted, and obedient to him. I went on the, <laughs> sure you should laugh, I went on Google and called up one solitary life. You've heard this before. I'm going to read it for you again now just to remind you. And I want you to think about this in light of what I'm talking about. In light of what I'm talking about in making those adjustments in our lives for earth-changing results. The power of those adjustments. And here's what James Allen Francis said uh, when he wrote this uh, very famous Uh, Actually, it was an essay turned into a poem. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30 years old. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never owned a home, never had a family, never went to college, never put his foot inside a big city never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property that he had on earth while he was dying. And that was his coat or his cloak. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave uh, through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone. And today he is the centerpiece of the human race, the leader of the column of progress, I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever were built, and all the parliaments that ever sat, all of the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Now, I want you to think in terms of what we're talking about, not for the heroes of the Bible, but turn to book 67 in the Bible. That's your book. You have that power. Now let's talk about modern day heroes. Uh, Billy Graham is probably the, the largest Christian hero I can think of. Think of what Billy Graham accomplished through his crusades over the years in which he was actively in ministry before the Lord took him home. And what did Billy Graham have to do in order to do that? Think in terms of his personal life. If you know a little bit about his biography, you know that he had to, he had to give up some things. He had, he had to adjust his life in order to do what he did. In order to go over, go into all of the world and preach the gospel. Ooh, that's Matthew chapter 28. I, I figured that one out already. And look what Franklin's doing. The son. Franklin is 
basically following in his father's footsteps to some degree. He's got a little different emphasis, but there's Franklin has changed his life. Franklin was somewhat of a waste, waste, uh, waste, the word, wastrel son. How could that possibly be? Well, he was, and now he ain't. He made some major changes in his life in order that the the purse ministry, what is it, what's it called? Samaritan purse. The Samaritan purse ministry could could have the effect that it has today. Major changements, major adjustments in his life, and that's the power of those adjustments when you turn those adjustments over to God. One solitary life. And then we have to realize the unchanging secret of adjustments. And the secret of adjustments, first of all, has to do with waiting on God. Waiting on God. From the day that I became a Christian, I decided that I wanted to teach. Uh, I know that I, I've been teaching my entire life uh, in a secular way. So, so no, no great revelation of, of thought goes into the fact that I'm still teaching today. But I wanted, to, I wanted to become a pastor. You know when I became a pastor? Six years ago, here. I'm 77 years old. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. And I just got around to it. I've been ordained for some time. Anyway, I'm not, this isn't my biography today. But you gotta wait on God. Shirley and I have done a number of things ministerially. I've been in Campus Crusade. Uh, I've been a child evangelism fellowship uh, director in the Coachella Valley. Didn't know that, did you? Some of you that live around here. Uh, and so I've done, I've, I've been ministering all of these years. I've been teaching uh, Bible study, Sunday school uh, for a lot of years, for all of these years. But never what I felt I was really called to do, and that's to preach the gospel. I knocked on the 22 doors, so I've done the evangelism, uh, and so on. The secret of adjustments is waiting on God. It's God's plan, not my plan. God had a reason for holding me off until I came here. I hope that was for you. I hope that's a good thing. Psalm 37 says this, Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you. To inherit the land. He will exalt you to inherit the land. And then the second thing is surrender to God. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Exodus chapter 24. Surrender to God. I will do what needs to be done. No matter what it might be. If God has called me to do it. And here again go back and list down those heroes that I shared. Pick a few that I haven't. And look at what they have done. Look what they have done in order to accomplish God's adjustments. And then depend upon God. Now I'm going to tell you a little personal thing. And then we can wrap this up. I have a four-year-old granddaughter. Her name is Lucy. And shes you've met her. She's been here a couple of times uh, in some of our social situations. And she, She's just the sweetest thing you ever want to meet, most of the time. 
Uh, we won't talk about the other times. Well, like all children of today's era, every, all children know about uh, safety seats in the car, seat belts, and all of that business. Because if you don't teach them that from a very early age, you are uh, in danger of being arrested for child endangerment, and you could actually go to jail if you don't buckle your kid up and teach the kid to buckle up, then off you go. Anyway, so Lucy knows, but she doesn't have the ability to do it herself. But she's four years old, and Lucy can do anything. She knows that. And so she gets, she crawls up in the car, and she jumps into that uh, booster seat that we have there for her, and she grabs hold of the seatbelt thing herself and starts to pull it down, and it's exciting to watch her do it. And she goes to snap it in place. But she doesn't quite get that done. She can't line it up. She can't get it in. I'm standing there, and, and she's told me flat out, I will do this. And so I stand there, not very patiently, I'll have to admit. I have a little problem there. Uh, and she's moving that thing around, that, that keeper around, and you can hear all the noise and the rattling and the this, and it just won't go in. And I say, have you clicked it yet? You know, that's the kind of the magic word. Is it clicked? And no. And she gets, uh. And so, do you want me to help you? No. And it, and it goes on and on and on. It doesn't take very long, but it seems like it takes forever. <clears throat> and finally, <coughs> she gives up. And she's... And she knows that her grandfather knows how to do it. I mean, let's face it. A four-year-old thinks that their father, their grandfather, their, their parent can do anything. They're that God figure. And that's, I want to make that point clear. And so finally she says, yes, I will accept your help. And isn't that us? Isn't that us as Christians, as we make plans and we go this way and we go that way, I know exactly what to do. God, you can have the day off. I'm, you know, spend extra time over here with them. You don't need to worry about me. I know you're a busy guy. So one less person to worry about and things will be good for you. Okay, you can send me a thank you note. Okay, that there it is. Don't we do that? And then what do we do? Like Lucy, we don't make the connection. We don't get it done. It's not until we're willing to say, Father, I need you. Father, be with me. Father, guide me. Father, please guide me. Oh, that's called prayer. That's called conversation with God. And by the way, I finally get it clicked. And then I kind of give her a pat on the back and say, see, we got it done. Because she did pull the thing down there. So, I mean, she did help. I mean, there was that. So she gets some recognition. But there you are. But I just think that's a good illustration of, of you and I as we make these plans. And, and we don't need God. I'm, Hey, I've got a college graduate. I've got a couple of degrees. I'm a smart guy. Am I smart enough to understand that there's somebody smarter than me? <clears throat> and let's see, who is that? God is smarter than me. So what can we do? What are the adjustments that we need to make?
Can we make adjustments in our circumstances, uh, in our job, in our home, in our finances, in your relationships? Can you do a better job as a mother, as a father, as a, uh, and so on? You know what family is. Uh, in your thinking, prejudices. Think of Jonah once again. Those Ninevites, they, they deserve one thing and one thing only. And that's true, isn't it? Those heathen out there playing golf right now, they deserve one thing. They've rejected God on Sunday morning. That's high treason. They deserve to go on the cross and hang with the thieves, don't they? Change your thinking and your commitments. What are your commitments? What is What takes up most of your time? In your actions, how do you pray? How do you give? How do you serve? Do you serve reluctantly? Do you serve... Enjoy. God has called me to do such and such. Or this has been presented in my life and an opportunity to serve. And am I ready, am I ready to get up and do it? Or do I have to sit there and like Moses argue with God? Well, you know, this is not a good. Tuesday is never a good day in the week for me, God. Uh, if you make this presentation to me tomorrow, uh, I'll give it some. You got it? Doesn't work, does it? In your beliefs. About God. And that's what we're talking about, isn't it? And so we're talking about experiencing God, getting to quote, know Him. And I've talked about this before. And it's not a matter of just having some Bible facts, knowing a couple of things about Him. Now I know, I really know Shirley. Shirley and I have been together for a long time. I'm not going to tell you that our anniversary is coming up very shortly. And any, no, I won't do that. But I know Shirley very well. I know her, and I know very nearly, except for Joan in the room, I know all of you, but I don't know you the way I know her. I know your name, I know probably what you do for a living if you're still if you're still actively engaged in the workforce. you know I know the, anything that you've shared with me. Well, I know those things. Do I know how you think? Do I really know how much time you spend in scripture? I've told you how much time you should spend in Scripture. That's my job. But do I know what you do? No, I don't. No, I don't. I want to know God. I want to know God in that real way, in that complete way, as God knows me. God knows me. Experiencing God. Experiencing God gives me the opportunity to be part of the power. In fact, you can put me in Hebrews chapter 11. That's the hero's chapter. Moses did this and Abraham, you know, all of the guys, uh, a couple of gals in there too, uh, did this and such and such and such and such. I belong in there too. Do you belong in there? Do you belong in Hebrews chapter 11? Because if you've changed one life, if you've pulled one person out of the pit of hell and you have them arm locked for an eternity trip to live with God forever, you belong in that book. You belong in Hebrews chapter 11. You do. Experiencing God. Experiencing God is what it's all about. Experiencing God. Let's pray together. Gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you.
today. For perhaps coming to know you just a little better. As we look around and we don't see you, but we know you're there. We feel your presence. Guide us. Help us to set aside worldly concerns, or at least make them a second priority. First priority is you and your plan for our lives and for what we can do to assist you or to do the work that you have set for us to do. And oh, we do give thanks. We give praise to the very power that the Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated to us and ask that you would lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's stand.